Thank you. Thank you that we are able to do all of these things. Thank you that you want us to, that we don't have to come to you and ask, should we be making disciples? Because that was Jesus' commission to us. Thank you that we don't have to ask you about whether we should talk about Jesus in either uh, informal or formal settings, because you've already told us to do that. So thank you, Lord, that we can be sure of this and sure that your blessing will be upon us, that the good hand of the Lord will be upon us as we seek to do your will and bring about your plans and purposes. Thank you, Father, that, that that means that we will have success because you will be with us wherever we go. So I praise you for that, Lord, and thank you because it's such a, a great reassurance to us that we're on the right track, we're doing the right thing. Um, help us to, as we do it, Lord, because some of us are timid and, and uh, don't have the right words and wonder what, what can we really add to this. Help us to understand that you are the one who's going to work through us and you will do great and mighty things through those people who consecrate themselves to you. So I thank you, Father, for that and I praise you and ask you now to be with us this morning. Help us to understand all that you wrote through Paul in this letter to the Corinthian church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what's the main subject of 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is what we were looking at this week? 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. What's the main subject, would you say? <laughs> what you can eat, yeah. What you can eat. Um, yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's. I was going to say that the, I thought the main uh, subject was freedom. Freedom and how we use it. And it was quite interesting to me, actually, because, you know, going over my notes for finally free in a couple of weeks. It was quite interesting to see what Paul said here um, about freedom. So, um, specifically, what sort of freedom, what sort of uh, area is he talking about? Freedom in what area? Yes, you know, to how, what to eat, as Jenny said, it, he talks a lot about what we can eat and what we can't eat. And, um, but how would you give that a title, really. I mean, what's the main uh, disagreement that's going on here? Hmm? Yeah, it's around the law. I think it's um, um, probably if you divided it, if you gave it two titles, how to use your freedom in Christ, that would be one thing. How to use the freedom that you have been given in Christ, because we've all been set free, and how to deal specifically with doctrinal areas of disagreement within the church and we are part of a church global globally and certainly in this country that has masses of different opinions about doctrine and about how we should go forward so how are these two chapters eight and nine different to chapters five and six what was what were chapters five and six about yes Yes, yeah. What was he dealing with in five and six? Yeah, he was talking about sexual morality. He was talking about sin, actually. He was talking about sin. And uh, what was his tone in chapter five and chapter six when he was talking about sin, particularly sexual sin? I mean, did he have any areas where he brooked disagreement and that would be okay? No. 
in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's absolutely categorically sure there is only one way, and it is this way. And if you disagree with this, you should be put out of the church until you change your mind. Because in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's talking about a standard of holiness that has to be upheld, and in particular in sexual immorality. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, what did you notice about those chapters that was different to 5 and 6? He's not talking about sin. He's talking about doctrine. It's sort of not cut and dry. Yes. Yes. Exactly. There's not one way to deal with this. Um, and what was his overriding message in, it, in both chapters? Yeah, it was mostly about relationships. It was about how you handle doctrinal issues on the foundation of we are to love one another. And that's how he approaches this. So that he, he doesn't come at this with any sort of, right, this is what you do and this is the only way to do it and you have to stick to this and if you disagree with me, you can't be a believer. Now the problem is we have a church which talks like that. This is doctrine, this is truth, and if you don't agree, you, have, you're, you can't be a Christian. And you certainly can't be a good Christian. And that's how we go on, especially people who study the word like we do. Especially. This sort of study um, brings out Im immense arrogance in people <laughs> because they think they know. We think we know. Well, I've read it, and it says this, and if you're not doing this, you must be wrong. And that's what Paul's really dealing with in Corinth. He's talking to people who have become arrogant about what they know. Doesn't he say, knowledge puffs up? Love edifies and knowledge puffs up. That actually means knowledge makes arrogant. So he can't mean that knowing the truth makes you arrogant. He, what he means is how you use the truth you know shows whether you are arrogant or not. So... Um, in chapter 8, chapter 9, and he's going to continue into chapter 10, he's going to give surprising answers, I think, to the questions that he's dealing with. And they've written to him about this, because he says, um, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. So you know that they've written to him about this. And he's going to uh, say that we are to admit, in our own minds, first of all, that it is possible, first of all, that, that someone will be more right than someone else. So it's possible you could be wrong about your doctrine and it is possible that someone could be right but not as right as someone else. Do you see what I mean? It's possible to understand things in a slightly different way and still be right. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think, this is what he's saying, is it, the, it is not as important... Um, or, or to recognise that being right is not the most important issue. What's the most important issue? Love. Love. Yeah. Why is that the most important issue? You were going to say something, Ellen? Humility. Humility, yeah, which comes out of love, probably. Why, is, why, do, why does he say love is the most important issue? Because we fight that here. I mean, we do, let's face it. Because we're always talking about, yeah, love, but there's got to be truth, there's got to be truth, there's got to be truth. You know. So why is love the most important issue? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, Paul says love's co love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah. Yes, yes. Even more than that. Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, but what did Jesus say? When he spent, if you want to know that what Jesus thought was the most important teaching of Jesus, I think this is the most important. You go to John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, and there you find it. That is the teaching that he gave his own disciples, the most intimate friends, and that was it. Love one another. Why, why does he say love one another? Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He doesn't say, everyone will know you are my disciples if you get every scrap of doctrine right. He doesn't say, if you live perfectly and you never do an unholy thing, they'll know that you are my disciples. He says, if you love one another. It is impossible to be loving if you have this arrogance in you that everything I understand from Scripture is right and everything you understand from Scripture is wrong. And if you don't change your mind, that's it, we're done. Definitely. Definitely. Do you think God knew that? <laughs> I think we just don't know it. You know, we just don't know it. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Now, there have to be boundaries, of course, because it, it, Paul's made boundaries. He's, he's made. He, he doesn't approach chapter five and chapter six in the same way as he approaches this. So there are distinctions between what you can have you know, use love, say love is the most important. You can't say love is more important than telling someone sexual immorality is sin. Do you see what I mean? So there have to be boundaries, but within what he's talking about, um, he's saying love is the most important. What, um, what does the word doctrine mean? I've used it a couple of times. What does it mean? What does doctrine mean? Yeah, it means it, it essentially it means teaching, but when it's when it's biblical doctrine, what does it mean? Rosie just said it actually. It means something teaching truth that is divinely revealed. So truth that comes from God and actually truth that is binding on a Christian community. I.e. um you know, if, if God reveals this, then this is the way we should live. These are the rules, if you like, of the way we should live. Um, now, knowing that, the definition of doctrine, don't you think it's a bit odd that Paul said the most important thing is love? If he says truth is divinely, re or if doctrine is divinely revealed truth that is binding on us as a community of Christians then surely that should be more important than loving each other. Yes, it is. That's it. I think that's where it is. Love is the, a doctrine. It is a divinely revealed truth that you have been brought into a new community and a new relationship. I don't know if anyone watched the Christmas videos, um, but uh, I didn't know why I was doing it, but I did a se the series up to Christmas on John... 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, because it seemed to me that that was the foundation of our life in Christ, that we are a new humanity, a new community, and that we have to uh, love. Love is above all other things. 
Um, uh, now, if that's the case, what do you think... Um, if love is the most important thing and being right is not the most important thing, why would that be, do you think? I mean, I know God says love is. You know, what happens when you think you know the right doctrine? It's yeah, it's heart attitude. And what, what's behind you knowing the right doctrine? See, we study script pride. Pride, that's exactly what it is. And actually, when you come with up to another believer and you are hell-bent on making them understand the correct doctrine, actually, you are hell-bent on making them know that you are right. That's what Paul's saying. That underneath your kind of uh, holy attitude about doctrine is this pride that you want to be right. Now, I don't know about you, but I know I have that. I know that that's there in me. I know that it's changing, but I know that it's there. There is in me this, but I know that it means this. Therefore, you have to believe what I believe. Now, I don't know. It may not be in you. I suspect it is. Yeah, I suspect it is. Um, and so, I think chapter 8 and chapter 9 are really, really, really important chapters. And into 10, because he goes into 10, which we'll look at next week. But really important for us, particularly, because we're studying scripture almost word for word by word. And we want to be right in our doctrine. And we're going into churches that we would say are wrong in their doctrine. So how do we handle what we know to be truth in a church community that is, as far as we can see, all over the place? So um, John 13, 34 and 35, that's where uh, I said Jesus said... Um, uh, he talked about love. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What sort of love was he talking about? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Agape. Yeah, agape love. Um, what sort of love is that? It's pure. It's the sort of love that God loves us with. How can we love that way? Only through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So we can't conjure up that love. That has to come through the Holy Spirit. So what must happen then before you're able to love other people like that? Yeah, you have to be surrendered. You have to understand that love for yourself. And now when you understand that God loves you in that way, and then you look at yourself with honest appraisal, what will you come up with? What's the end result? If you honestly look at yourself and know that God loves you with this sort of love, agape love, so much that he's come to dwell within you, what should be the first response to that? Grace and yeah, grace and gratitude. Grace. I don't deserve that sort of love. And then what would it be? Oh my goodness, that means you've loved me with that sort of love since I joined the family of Christ. And that means that all those times when I was first a believer, when I was beating everybody over the head with what I knew in the Bible and how well I knew it, and oh my goodness, you should believe what I believe, God loved me then. He loved me then. He loved me even though I was entirely wrong. He loved me when I wasn't loving anybody else. He loved me when I was telling everybody what they should think instead of understanding how I should think. Now, is that true for you? 
Please nod your heads, because I can't be the only one. It must be true for you. And I don't know anybody who's gone into these sorts of studies but has not had a tinge of that in them. I know that that happens because you start to think that you know the way it should be and then you beat everybody else over the head with it. Um, what is the uh, reality then? If we love one another, if Jesus says, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another, what is he expecting that agape love, that love of God through you to achieve? In you and through you, what's he expecting it to achieve? What would be the word? Harmony. Yeah, harmony. Uh, yeah. Let's say in you first. In you first, Barbara. What would what was he expecting that love to achieve in you? Grace. Yeah. But to achieve in you. Okay, I am forgiven, right. therefore I will continue. Right. So I wonder if that love is for us to continue. Yeah, yes, uh, that's true. Yes, that's true. That's what Alan said earlier. But, but wouldn't you say, wouldn't you call all of it transformation? He's expecting the love of God to transform you. To transform you. And, and it's the transformation that is the witness. See what I mean? It's it's actually it's not necessarily the single like your peace or your humility or your joy or your whatever else because lots of people have peace and joy in in different circumstances. So it's the transformation that is the witness. It's the fact that you were like this, but now you're like this. That cannot be accounted for any other way but the love of God in you and then going out through you. Now, if, if it starts in you, the transformation, then what, when it goes out from you, what will you start to understand about other people? How God sees them. Yeah, how God sees them. And then what will happen to you? Yes. No exactly. To us, and how you've trans how you've been starting at least to be transformed, and so when you look at other people, what will you start to understand about them? Yeah. Oh my goodness, you're in the same family as me. That means you're on the same path of transformation. That means wherever you are now, you won't be next year. You will be transformed. And now think about how that will change your attitude to what people believe right now or, or the way they think they can live or what they're bound up by or what they can't let go of or, or all of those things. How will that start to affect weight the way you think about them? Pray with hope that you're expecting them to be transformed. But part of the way that God will transform them, apart from the Holy Spirit within them, how will he transform them? Through you loving them. Through you loving them. So it's like, it's like we come at this with, but it's important to know truth. Of course it is. God gave us truth. 
It's really important to know truth. And it's really important to understand this is what God means when he says this. That's really important. But it is not so important that you keep telling someone what God means when they're not perhaps ready to understand it. It's more important that you love them when they don't understand so that you get the opportunity to bring them on into an understanding of, you know, that will come perhaps later. What, what do we call that? I mean, it's transformation in you. It's transform- You're seeing other people in a different way. You're coming alongside them. You're praying. You're talking to them. You're living with them in community. What would we call that? That's discipleship. That's discipleship. It's understanding that not everybody is where you are. Some people are much further ahead because they've walked with the Lord much longer. They've had many different experiences that have brought them on. And then there are people who are much further, I don't want to say behind, but they're just not where you are because they haven't been on that road for so long. Or perhaps they haven't had the blessing that you've had of a Bible in their hand since they were six years old. Or perhaps they haven't got a community that they live within that people can help them with. Or they've never done a Bible study. Or they, or they didn't even know there was Bible study. Nobody ever told them to read their Bible every day. Nobody ever told them to pray. No one ever said, do you want me to pray with you? <coughs> do you see what I mean? So they're not where you are. And what they believe about when they do read these things is not what you know about them. But once they start reading and once you start talking to them and praying with them and loving them in this new community, you can be absolutely positive that transformation will happen. And that's what Paul's talking about in 8 and 9. He's talking about, yes, it's important to know truth, but nothing is as important as loving your brother and your sister. Nothing is as important as that. Now, that should revolutionize the way you think about things. Because it certainly, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think, wow, I have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn. Hmm? Yeah, that's what I mean. So it, it should do that, Barbara. It should be bringing us to that point. So now what will happen on a Sunday morning when you're in a church you're not usually in and you hear the preacher preach a message and straight away he says... I'm going to preach from Ephesians chapter 4. So you turn to Ephesians 4 and you've got all your little marks in your Bible and you know Ephesians 4 and you know what it talks about, you know what Paul's saying and he starts talking about something totally different which is what happened to me on Sunday. He he started talking about something and I thought, that's not right. That's just not right. That's not the context of this chapter. You know, Paul's talking about this and you're talking about that and that's not right. And at the end of the message, what happens? 50, 60 people go forward for prayer because they've responded to his interpretation of this message. It wasn't wrong per se. There wasn't anything heretical in it. He just took something that (coughs) I understood in a different way and he preached a message on it that was good but wasn't quite technically correct. What am I supposed to do with that? When he's went into my head, pops, but he's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. You know, and I'm trying to keep my face still. What am I supposed to do as he's preaching? Pray. I'm supposed to pray. You know what? I'm not even sure that he's to reveal it to him. I'm supposed to pray that God would first show me something that I'm not seeing in this that he's going to draw out from this passage. And then that God's 
truth will go by his spirit to the people who are listening and that God will speak to the people who are listening. And then I think you need to pray for the preacher that God will empower him to speak his truth. Now, I can honestly tell you that, I mean, I've been a Christian 23 years, probably even as little as 10 years ago, I'd have been sitting there, well, that's just entirely wrong and I think I've got to go up to him at the end and tell him that he's entirely wrong. I mean, I never did, but, you know. I have to say that's the truth. Because, I mean, I've been studying this way, word for word, Greek, Hebrew, text, you know, since I was first a Christian. Oh, my goodness, there's nothing I don't know about the Hebrew and the Greek text <laughs> and the context and this and that. Do you see what I mean? It's a real humbling experience to think to yourself that God worked through this man even though he didn't preach in the way, technically, that I thought he should be preaching. And I am not supposed to criticise him. I am supposed to love him and do what I can do, a stranger in a strange church. What can I do but pray? Pray for him, pray for the church, pray for his ministry, pray for everything, that God would so get hold of him. Now, I'm not talking about heresy. That's a different thing. But I'm talking about slightly different understandings of texts. And Did you learn anything from his understanding of the text? Um, uh, I learned that people will respond to wrong technical, yeah. <laughs> um, that they will, and that God can speak through it. Yeah. And he was a very good speaker, I have to say. He was a very, very good speaker. And he obviously knew the word. So he was taking this and making it say something else, uh, which wasn't he heresy, but yeah. just, you know, I didn't think it was quite right. But, um... Even that covenant, you can't concentrate what they're saying. Well, that's what I was praying about as we went through, because, you know, yeah. So, anyway, um, let's read First Corinthians chapter 8. Um, Definitely. Definitely. Yes. 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 Heresy, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, God must be using that all the time, must yeah. he? I mean, look at our pea brains. What do we know? Yeah, yeah go ahead, Alan. When you're coming back from supper, yesterday, and we stopped at reading services. Mm. We, we parked in the blue ticket area and got out, and there was a, a gentleman sitting on the floor, back up against the post, and the sign in front of the sign, please help. And we went in, and we had a snack, came out, and we had a moment, and I thought about talking to when we got in the car and drove off, 
where he was. In the middle of a motorway. Yeah. How did he get there? Mm. Was this inside his palms? Who the fault was Have I? Sorry, Alan. I didn't think you would, of all people, would. I, you usually do speak to people. Because you often prick my conscience with when you tell of who you've spoken to. I guess God will forgive you if that man was someone. And that's the lovely thing you started off with. You do for me, absolutely. Only half of my family won't come to this time because I answer it, answer it, answer it is it's the transformation that's important and that's the thing and all of your words actually I mean words are important God is it God spoke spoke he spoke words mm -hmm. so it's definitely important um, but actually it's how his word transforms your heart and your life that is the witness to people because people will be uh, moved by your transformation. They really will be. And, um, and that's the hard part because it's easy to speak the words, isn't it? I mean, it's just easy. And if we could just do that. It's an out for all of us. Absolutely. Not just all of us. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, so let's read First Corinthians chapter 8. Um, we'll just read straight through the chapter. It's only 13 verses, so perhaps one person do the first half and then someone else. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogance, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, has not yet known as he ought to be. And if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, 
you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Thank you. Okay. What happens normally when there's um, disagreement over truth in the body of Christ? I mean, what would be the normal verse that you would that would pop into your head if you've done any study, really? Well, maybe a, it's a hard, hard thing to answer, so I'll tell you the one that always pops into mind. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Um... Uh, I can't, turning the grace of God into licentiousness and even denying our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. That's Jude, verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. That would be my normal response to truth that is, that is being, or, or error that's being preached. You must contend earnestly and you must put people out of the church, i.e., or you must mo remove yourself from that church. Um, a few times, um, not from me, but from people, you'll get the opposite response. You'll get, just love them all into the kingdom. Just love them all and they'll all come in. So what's the challenge then for us? Because you will go one way or the other, depending on your personality. You'll go either contend earnestly for the truth or, or for the faith or just you know, just love them all. God so loved the world. He loved everybody. We're all children of God. Your, your, your personality will take you one way or the other. So what's the challenge then for us as believers? To always seek God. Yeah, to always seek God. Yeah. And go further with that, Maureen. Uh, well, because he might actually <coughs> tell one person to do one thing and another. Yes, yes. And, uh, Yes, yes. Right, and what would you expect if you walk that closely to the Lord and you go to him and you talk to the Holy Spirit and you pray or you're praying and asking God to guide you and direct you, what would you expect him to do? Refer you to the word, give you the wisdom. What would be the wisdom that he would give you? What would be the first thing he'd say? Discernment is one thing, right? So do you think that the first, first line of thinking would be, is the person you disagree with a believer? Are they a believer? Okay, let's supposing uh, you say, yeah, 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 they've given their life to Christ. But I can't go any further than this, Lord, because, I mean, they're wrong. <laughs> okay, so what do you think the next thing he might say? Yeah, speak the truth in love, yeah. So what, what do you... But let's follow the, the thing, because Maureen says, walk with the Lord, ask God, ask for his guidance, ask for his direction. We're not going to go one way or the other. We're going to try and walk the way God wants us to. What will be the next thing he'll say? Say that again, Maureen. Definitely, definitely, yeah, definitely. What do you think? What do you think he's going to say first? I mean, what might be the first thing he'd say to you to do? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I'm, I'm, because tender earnestly for the faith is is it part of a letter that Jude wrote because certain people had crept in unnoticed, denying and defiling the word of God and the name of Christ. So f- straight away they can't have been Christians. He's separating them and saying they've they've come in and they've done that. They've come into the church and they're doing that. So first of all, I don't have to agree with unbelievers. Unbelievers will never know doctrine. They won't know truth. And I can't have unity with them. That's why it's important, I think, for the first thing to be, are they believers? Now, if they're believers and they're saying something that you, you know is wrong, let's face it, you know it's wrong because you know what the Word says. So what do you think the Holy Spirit would next be saying to you? Whether they have the Spirit. Yeah, so, well, you can't be a believer and not have the Spirit. That's... Definitely not. Pray, pray you can't, Maureen. No, That's what scripture says. No, no, they won't be. So what will you do? What did you say, Rosemary? Pray, pray for them. Pray for them what? I think I'd pray for an opportunity to be able to talk to them. Right. That the Lord would make it, not me. Right. You know. But what would you because you see we're all we're all of us gonna talk. <laughs> we're gonna talk to them. Do you think you'd be able not to talk? Yeah, go ahead, Linda. Sometimes you need to listen to that person. Yeah. Definitely, I think you do. I definitely think you need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Definitely slow to speak and quick to listen. And it's not that you're... It's that you know they are wrong, but being... You telling them what should be thought is not the most important thing. What's the most important thing for the person that you're with who is totally wrong? That you maintain relationship and that you love them, that God loves them, that uh, you're not going to correct them at every turn. Uh, honestly, that's, that's been a real failing of mine. I mean, I'm just going to correct you every time you say something that's not right. And that's so, it is unloving. In that it way. is unloving. It is, and, and it's not edifying. No, and we've been in that place ourselves when we could have been corrected by the Lord, and how, you know, God could have corrected us to such an extent yes. that He acted as such. Yes. Yes. So. Yes. Christ is our correction, so thank God for Him. Yes. Um, and, that, and that we can think of that then in that situation, mm. it brings us back to the humility yeah. and the love. Yeah. Remember, we're not talking about sin. He's very, I know you're not, but he's very clear on sin. He's very clear. If there's sin in the church, that's got to be dealt with. So we're not talking about sin. We're talking about misunderstanding doctrine or one person being more right than another person or someone being downright wrong but still being a believer. How are we going to deal with all of these different situations because Jesus says that oh, and, and Paul says here that the most important thing is love he says it in chapter 8 um, now concerning things sacrificed to idols we know that we all have knowledge we all have knowledge who's the all every believer has knowledge we all have knowledge knowledge makes arrogant but love edifies it's a straightforward statement knowledge makes 
arrogant, but love edifies. So there must be a way that we are supposed to be combining knowledge and love and living that out. And the thing is, that will transform us before it goes out. It's um, let your uh, speech all be seasoned with salt. Seasoned yeah. With Definitely. Definitely. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And knowledge of how love and the thing is, I think the most important thing is that we get away from having to be right. That we, we ourselves get away from this need to be right all the time, to be understood all the time, to be uh, whatever it is all the time. <laughs> you know, we, if we can move ourselves from that and start to live in the place where the other person is more important, their growth in the Lord, their being built up is more important than them knowing that I'm right or me being right. If we can live in that place, that's where the Holy Spirit lives. His, his whole work in every believer is to lead them on from where they are. Now, if we are going to live the way he wants us to live, we are going to be doing what he does, and that is leading them on from where they are. So, I mean, you know, we can look at our families. Yeah. And it's not because I don't tell him scripturally what he should do, <laughs> but just that because he is weak, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ There you go. That's it. Exactly. That's what he's trying to say. Their argument is about food sacrificed to idols. Now, what he says about idols, he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10, and he's going to actually say an idol is nothing. But he knows the reality that there are demons behind idols. So he's going to say that too. And so he's trying to get us to understand, I think, that somehow, you know, we know that we can eat anything. Uh, he says that here. We can eat anything. And if we're on our own, it's totally okay. Eat anything. But if you're with someone who thinks you can't eat anything, then it is far more important that they be built up than you say, oh yeah, but you're wrong about that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10 that we can really eat anything and idols are nothing. Do you see what I mean? He, I mean, this is a very simple example, but it's about the whole <coughs> range of Christianity, of living in family. I mean, how difficult it is. With, if, if you've got a family, you know how difficult it is to live in a family. <laughs> it's really difficult. Because people just, they just disagree and we just think we see things differently and understand them differently and how difficult that is sometimes. Because of course you know that you're perfectly right and they're all wrong. That, but, you know, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to let someone else be right, even when you know they're not. And the difficult thing is to not... Yeah. It's to... That's what Linda said, wasn't it? Be slow to speak. And sometimes it's glorious. Yes, it is. It is. It is. 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay, first thing about this is that, um, uh, you know, we could sort of say it was a bit ridiculous to even to disagree on this, but it was an accepted social practice, apparently, to eat, to have meals in a temple or in some other place of idol worship. That was where they had their parties, Corinthians. So first of all, um, you know, there would have been believers coming to the Lord and... um, they would have just been continuing that practice because that's what they always did. So, um, and to not do those things meant you, you didn't get involved in any social activity at all, really. That's more or less what it meant in Corinth. doesn't mean that here. Um, secondly, apparently, most of the meat sold in shops had been offered in sacrifice to idols. Now, we have that issue with halal meat. So we, we have that now. How many supermarkets are not selling halal meat? None, or almost none. And what are we supposed to do then? We're all supposed to turn vegetarian and not eat the meat? Do you see what I mean? I mean you know, I- these things have relevance in our time, even if they're not exactly the same. Um... Apparently, the priests, uh, part of the meat was offered on an altar to the god that they were actually offering to, and then uh, part of it went to the priests, and part of it went to the worshipper. So it was just, that's what they did. The priests sold what they couldn't use, and uh, it would be very difficult to know, apparently, in any given shop, what had been part of a sacrifice or not. So, I mean, I didn't know for a long time that meat was being, you know, that it was halal meat. I didn't know. I just thought it was all regular meat mm. until someone told me about halal meat. But he says it's all right if you don't know. He does. He does, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, I mean, I was oblivious and, and you know. Um, so, uh, so there's two separate questions, really, for the Corinthians. Taking part in idol feasts, i.e. feasts, you know, in front of idols, and eating meat that has been bought in a shop that has already been sacrificed to an idol. There's two things he's talking about. Um, What does he actually say about those things then? Chapter 8, verse 4. There's no such thing as an idol. There's no such thing as an idol in the world. And then verse 8... Right, now th- there's two things about this. He's either quoting from their letter, yeah. which is what they've said, yeah. or he's saying it. So already we have a point of divergence. Yeah. Uh, some people think that he's quoting from their letter, and some people think that this is what he's saying. What do you know about Paul? I mean, what does he believe about God? Just generally, what does he believe about God? I mean, not all the details. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, first of all, does he know that there's only one God? There's only one God. So all the gods and the goddesses of the Corinthian culture, what does Paul know about them? They're all nothing. They're all nothing. They don't exist. They are just made-up gods. Right. What else does he know 
about God in terms of that? God sees into your heart. So he knows exactly what you think about the idol or the non-idol or everything else. He knows exactly where you are in your thinking about doctrine. He knows exactly what you understand and what you don't understand. And he knows whether you want to please him or whether you don't want to please him. That's a horrible thing, isn't it? <laughs> but he knows. He knows. He knows it all. He knows all your motives. He knows all your thoughts. He knows all the reasons. He knows all of your hang-ups and all of the things you're still letting bind you. He knows every single thing about you. And yet, he loves you. He loves you. So what do you think he's going to be more interested in than you going to a party where meat has been previously sacrificed to a so-called God? What do you think he's going to be more interested in? Right, so what was the reason to go to the party? That's the first thing. Why are you going to the party? The second thing. What's the second thing? I mean, just, just think about it. Think about if you're God and you're talking to us and we've all been out this weekend doing various things and he knows every detail of it and I don't want to keep going on about it but I want us to think about it in real terms for us. He knows why you went where you went on Saturday. Yes, so what was it about that thing that you felt it was important to be a part of if it didn't glorify God? What was it about it? You know, what was it that you did on Saturday or didn't do on Saturday? Will this satisfy my flesh, in which case that should be dead? Yeah. But might it also be yeah. to keep a relationship? Definitely, exactly. Exactly, definitely. So you going to your gay, it's a perfect example, you going to your gay sister's um, civil partnership, God knows all the reasons in your heart, all the ways you're trying to love her, all the ways you're trying to glorify him, all the ways that you're trying to do that. And what do you think God is saying when you go to that civil partnership? Because there'd be people in here who say, oh, I'd never go to that. So what do you think God is saying? Love her. But also he's saying, well, Vanessa's got, still got a couple of things to learn, but oh my goodness, look how she's transformed and look how she wants to honour me and look how she wants to please me. That's what God's interested in. He's not interested in what we do, per se, rather than why we do it. Now, that you just take that by extension onto other people. I'm not interested in what you do rather than why you do it. I'm not interested in you being right all the time rather than the idea behind that you want to grow in your knowledge of God. That's what this is all about. Yeah. Say that again, Alan. Yeah. Before you start yeah. What about it, are you saying? No. But you does could it, do that. Does it make a difference? Yes. Yeah. Does it make a difference? Well, you tell me. What do you think? Well, I think. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So, so for you to say grace every time you eat is an important thing. I don't say grace when I eat at home because my husband's not a believer and he doesn't want me to do that. Now, who's right here? You or me? Yeah, but you can say grace in your heart. I could, but 
Is it just words? What does it mean, grace? What does it mean? I mean, to a person who doesn't say grace in her own home because her husband's not a believer, what does it mean when I say, Lord, bless this food? Or, Lord, thank you for this food? What does that actually mean? Where's it coming from in my heart? See what I mean? It's like, it's like I was thinking today, I haven't, pr- I haven't opened my Bible since Friday till today because I've been staying with my daughter and three grandchildren and visiting a new baby and other. And, and I was A&E on Saturday night with one lo- a lot of them. So, I mean, there's just been no time, really. The kids are in my bed at about six in the morning. So, I mean, there has been time, but it's not time I felt was my own. But, but... You know, there's a part of me driving down this morning. I'm praying and saying sorry to the Lord because I haven't looked at my Bible in those three days. I did Friday morning, but not since then. And I'm apologizing and asking forgiveness from the Lord. And I think that's right and proper, even though he understands that it was difficult. Do you see what I mean? But if it's from the heart or not, isn't words powerful? Well, actually, Alan, I'm not... Yeah, that's another whole thing, isn't it? Um, are words powerful in and of themselves if I don't have any heart belief in what I'm saying? I mean, that's another whole thing. I don't know, Alan. Does it depend on whether the words are coming from the heart or from the conscience? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. If you've got a conscience. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Neither of them are wrong, no. but one party is more right than the other. It is. That's the but thing. Exactly. It. So it's, it's, it's that, and that's the understanding, yeah, that nobody's wrong here, but some people are more right than others. There is perfect freedom in Christ. You can eat any meat. It doesn't make any difference because you know that an idol is nothing. There's only one God. Jesus himself said, Matthew 15, uh, 17 to 20, that it's what comes out of you rather than what you put in. 15, 17 to 20. Uh, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So what he's saying is it's not what you put into your body that defiles you, because that's going to be dealt with in a physical way. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. So now think about that in terms of this situation in Corinth. It didn't matter. That's what Paul's saying. It is more right to believe that it doesn't matter than to believe that it does matter that you eat this food. It's definitely more right. Paul definitely believes that you can eat anything. And he's taking his belief from what Jesus said in chapter 15 of Matthew's Gospel and the fact that he's... God has now pronounced all things clean. Remember um, Peter in Acts chapter 10. There's nothing unclean now. Everything is clean. So he's taking his understanding from that, but he's also very gently saying, 
But really, if other people think that it's wrong, why would you want to be forcing your understanding of freedom on someone who would be defiled by that because they would be conscience-stricken by that? And it would bother them that they had done that. So is it really so important to you that you force that freedom on someone rather your than or your opinion of it? Because you know, that boundary, that law-keeping, is the thing that's keeping their focus on conflict. Yeah, if yeah. If another reason, totally outside the law, I think, yeah, jump on their neck. Yeah. But if they're just keeping the rules, you know, the ten commandments, yeah. just so they can stay close to God, yeah. you can wait a bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I can wait a bit. I can wait a bit. I mean, I'm, a, you know, like Sabbath. I mean, that'll get me every time. That will get me every time. People who say that we must keep the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? What is the Sabbath? And who was the Sabbath given to? Right. I'm not Jewish. Even though I'm a Christian, I'm not a Jew. So there's a whole load of things. But, and I would have told you, absolutely, this is the Sabbath and take no notice of that. That's just a whole load of rubbish and read Hebrews chapter 4 and oh my goodness, we've all entered the Sabbath rest of God and what I don't know about the Sabbath is not worth knowing. And all of that would have been cutting people down, cutting them down. Why do I want to do that? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? If you think that you need to keep the Sabbath, be Saturday or Sunday, then you better keep the Sabbath because it will defile you if you do something that you think is wrong and yet you do it anyway. It will spoil your relationship with God. And I'm supposed to be all about building your relationship with God. We're all supposed to be all about that. So really, I'd, honestly, I'd like to say, we're going to take a break now, but I'd like to say, make a list of all the things that you think are absolutely crucially important. Absolutely crucial. And then, and then make a list of what is really essential according to Scripture. What's essential for your faith? What would you die for? Is eating halal meat on that list? No, I, I, but what I'm saying is, is it? Is Sabbath on that list? Is... is um, going into a pub on that list. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's, and we have to get this right. I feel like we really have to get this right now in, in 2018 because we're going be to be asked soon to stand for what is right. And Lord, I ask you to bring us back into the room, bring us back to where we are, help us to understand this, Lord, and to differentiate between sin and just not being quite right in our doctrine. Help us to understand what the difference is and how we are to respond differently in these areas. And help us to understand love, this love that we, are, we have been given and that is at work in us. You, uh, I, I think Paul says that this love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us in Romans 5. So, Lord, help us to um, understand this love and how it is transforming us, and how we are to be understanding and uh, edifying and building up one another, Lord God, that we might all reach, as Paul says, 
the full measure of our maturity in Christ, uh, that we might be a witness, Lord, in, in the world. So help us to love one another, to live in the understanding that it doesn't matter if we're always right. Um, yeah, thank you, Lord. Amen. Um, okay, so um, Paul's trying to get them then to, uh, to look at everything through this lens of um, the fact that uh, truth is important. It's important that we know truth, but it is m m more important with believers that we love one another in a way that will bring them up to the full measure of their stature in Christ. That's in Ephesians, actually. It's where this guy preached from, <laughs> Ephesians 4, um, on Sunday. So how does Paul show, he goes into chapter 9, what does he do now in chapter 9 to kind of amplify what he said in chapter 8? Yeah, he's using himself as a, as a witness to what he's saying, actually. Yeah, and what's he saying he does in chapter 9? Well, why don't we read chapter 9? Let's just read, break it up into four parts. So someone read seven verses and then um, just we'll read through chapter 9. I am 
compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. All right. 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews, to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all my people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. <coughs> do not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are an imperishable, but we an imperishable are. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beat in the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. <laughs> should not be disqualified. <laughs> yeah, okay. So what would you say then? I mean, because it's absolutely definite that Paul stood firm on the truth. He, he, he absolutely, he spent his whole life preaching truth, speaking truth. He wrote almost half the New Testament. So he, uh, he is a, the, you know, a, a man who knows and understands truth and who is about preaching the truth. That's what he wants. He wants people to know, first of all, to know the gospel, to know Jesus, and then to know the truth. But he himself has held himself as an example to try and get them to understand that it is, there is something between truth and love there is a path that we have to walk. And uh, he doesn't call it loving commitment, but that's what I've called it. There is a loving commitment to one another and to the truth that we have to, first of all, understand in our own lives. So we must have a loving commitment to one another and to the truth of God. So first to God, if you like, and then to one another. And we have to be determined that nothing about ourselves will interfere with that loving commitment to God and to one another. So in order for me to be able to do that, what must I first understand about myself? I mean, we've talked a lot about love, but what else must I understand about myself? 
Yeah, my answerable only to God, and but even before that, actually, I don't know everything. I don't know everything. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I have to understand that I have limited knowledge. My knowledge is limited by my own brain. My knowledge is limited by the fact that I've only been 23 years a Christian. My knowledge is limited because I'm a human being. And I will make mistakes. I'll make mistakes. I won't understand certain things. I'll understand something one way, maybe for 10 years, and suddenly God will reveal something to me that I have never seen before. That is true about everybody, every single person. Now, if that's right, if we none of us know everything, that means that when I sit with Jenny and we're talking, you're, I'm only picking you because you're right in front of me, and we're talking and we might disagree on certain things, we have to both understand that we have limited understanding, mm -hmm. limited knowledge. So therefore, it becomes far more important to me that Jenny and I remain committed to one another in love than it is that I'm right and she's wrong. Now, that's true of all of us. It's true of every other believer that you know. You should be, we should be, I should be. Sorry, I hate that word should, but we, it should be our joy to start to understand that it's more important to love that person than it is to get them up to wherever I think I am. Yeah. It's wholesome and it feels wholesome to your heart, doesn't it? It feels right, doesn't it? It feels yeah. right. Yeah. When you start to see it, it feels right, yeah. yeah. And I think I like that feeling mm. and I, I mm. getting to understand that is, is the better way to be with It you. is. And it is. It's exactly. Now so but how will that work in actual reality then? Because you know, Linda and I were talking about um Christians living together in the church and that has become common hasn't it common that Christians live together and that's sin it's sin definite sin but we're living in a society and in a church that doesn't understand that that doesn't understand it or refuses to accept it so what are we going to do with that then I mean where are we going to how are we going to love those people and teach them the truth about God I mean, what, what, where do you think? I'm asking you, where do you think your line is? It's difficult. It, it is. Church, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, if the person, even if they're within the church, aren't a true Christian, then they're of the world. Yeah, so nothing you can do. Yeah. But if the person is professing to be a Christian, mm -hmm. then you would expect them to be as you would be. So what about if they say to you, well, I just don't believe that? It is, exactly. It's what God yeah. believes and not what they believe. But how will we handle it? Yeah. Honestly, if this is a serious issue. How will we handle it? What are we going to do? Because we're, they're in a church that you and I, let's say we go to the same church, we may be the only two people who actually know it says don't do that in the whole church. There might be a full church of people who love God and want to make him known and preach the gospel and help the poor and all of those things, but they just don't know the scripture that says, you know, 
can't live together. Do you see what I mean? Before you're married. So what will we do about that? What do you think God would do about it? What do you think he wants us to do about it? That's, an, that's a question. I mean, come on, we're all mature Christians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in that some would say well the world has changed and therefore you know, we should be going along with that right so as I say we can only mm. know what we, what we would say when we know what the reasoning behind these mm. things are and mm. what God Stop. reveals that's why we need the gifts of the Holy Spirit we definitely do mm-hmm. so to have that word of wisdom and, that yeah. word of knowledge to and the discernment the discerning yeah. of spirits exactly so yeah Well, Paul's talking into a situation that their culture is totally different to ours. So we can't look at Corinthians and say, well, because he was talking to tent companions. Remember we talked about that last week? People who lived together in a tent because they were slaves and they couldn't get married. So our rules of you can't live together before you're married don't fit in that society. But the rules in our society, we have a cultural, still slightly, a cultural expectation or understanding of marriage being the way. Certainly in the church. So now when we're talking into our society, and in our church society, we have at least a foundation of understanding that we should be married because that's the permanent so union. Yeah, there's a... You start the conversation yeah. How do you know that? Yeah. 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 It doesn't. It doesn't. So what we're going to do? Yeah. So what we're going to do? Seriously, that's the difficulty. That's the difficulty. So what would you say to that statement? Because it doesn't say you can't live together before you're married. Because that situation didn't exist. It didn't exist in, yes, it didn't exist in the Hebrew culture because in the Hebrew culture everybody got married. You had this betrothal and this marriage ceremony. And in the pagan culture, anything went. So you had Corinth where you'd four, we talked about four different types of union last time. No, no. It's what I'm trying to say. I mean, it doesn't say, Sue's right, it doesn't say in the Bible, you can't live together before you're married. Because the Bible didn't have that situation. No. We have that situation. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Jill. No, no, you can interrupt, because otherwise I'll never stop talking. So please. It depends how you define fornication. Yeah, it does. It does. And it depends what you think. I mean, when you say to someone, you can't live together before you're married, what do you mean? Yeah, why not? If it doesn't say that in Scripture, why not? So we've got to have a reason. That's what I'm saying. We must have a reason. Yeah. What's the reason? Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That is the reason that we have for saying marriage is what he was talking about. He was talking about marriage in scripture. He was answering questions about marriage and it's his response that gives us our response. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And actually, only death breaks that 
breaks that cleaving. He says that Moses allowed divorce, but only because of your hardness of heart. So basically, as far as Jesus was concerned, God wanted this cleaving together for life. Is that what people who live together understand about living together? If they understand this is for life, they really are cleaving together. I mean, we're talking Christians, because if they're not Christians, they don't care anyway. So Christians, if they understand that and they are making a commitment to one another, I honestly don't know how we are going to say to them, this is, you know, we're putting you out of our fellowship. Really? What we're saying is a marriage ceremony within a church is a public witness to the fact that you are cleaving to one another. But, but if they come back to you and say, but I am cleaving to this person and my commitment is for life, I honestly think that you and I have to say, okay, that's not my understanding, but I love you anyway. Yes. Now, uh, my question would be with someone who are living together, why, why not be married? Why not get married in the church? Why not have the blessing of the whole community? Why not be making a statement to your unbelieving friends? Why not do that? So that would be the way I would start the conversation. But I really think there's a lot of grey areas in there, and we have to be careful. We have to be careful. For life. But we don't need a piece of paper. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. That's valid, really, isn't it? Mm. But a piece of paper is a vow. Yes, it's a vow. Mm. But for Christians, we're not going to do that. Mm. You know, yes, you want to have. But why would you want to yeah. make this commitment? Exactly. Yeah, but exactly. There might be, but the, thi- the yeah. biggest they thing is, to God but our faith is not private. That's another thing. Mm-hmm. Our faith is an outward faith, an open faith. We are supposed to be visibly glorifying God in our life. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to say, well, I've made a commitment to my partner and to God, and we're together, and that's, you know, God says that's fine, I think at some stage, it's like the person who doesn't want to say he's become a Christian, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it says speak out. So I think there's that in there too. Why would you not want to make a, a splash of this? Because you want to glorify God with your union. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 
So we couldn't say the same vows that we'd said for the piece of paper. So, and that was only witnessed by two people. There was no other witness to no, that. That's so it's exactly. It so what? It yes, and that's what I'm saying. It's a very tricky area. Um, I think uh, what I said to Linda was, if you've got two young people heading up a youth ministry, living together, who are not married, the witness of that mm. is that's having effect on other people's lives. Now, then I think we would have to be really sure. Yes, exactly. It's a stumbling block, and that's definitely what we're not supposed to do. Yes. Yes. Before God? Probably. Yes. Exactly. You were there because you believed that was the outward speaking of the fact that you and Ed were now going to be joined together, yeah. and and you wanted to honour God, even in your even if your understanding was much less than it is now. You wanted to honour God. God blesses that. He blesses that, and that honours Him. Yeah. Anyway, the the whole point I'm trying to make here is this is not a this is right and this is wrong. You know, go ahead, Maureen. Unbeliever, definitely, 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 exactly, definitely. I mean, what do we do with that? We do. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. But what will you do with that? I mean, I have a friend in that situation. So what do I do with that? You know, I'm supposed to love her, and I do love her. She's like my sister. I love her, and I want her to reach her fullness in Christ. And I want her to go on with the Lord. And she's making all sorts of accommodations to try to do that, yet still live with this person who's an unbeliever. So, so what do we do in that situation? She has asked me, where does it say don't be yoked with unbelievers? And I have shown her the verse. I've talked to her, but I'm not her judge, and I am not God. So my job is to love her and tell her the truth. That's my job. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be edifying each other, building up the church, loving each other, and telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 What I'm trying to get us to is really, as I said, make the list. Make the list this week. What's essential? What is essential? to be a part of the, f the family of God, the kingdom of God? What do you need to get into heaven? What's essential about your faith? What are the, the absolute foundational premises, doctrines of faith? And then what's, you know, what would you die for? If someone put a gun to your head and said, what would you die for? Yeah, but there are other things, you know, that God is one. He is Trinity, he is three and one, but he is, a, uh, he is one God. There is no saviour but I, says God. So Jesus is God. That is an essential of faith. Um, but, but 
we can't do the list here, but write a list, write a list of what you consider to be essential to faith and then ask yourself the question, is me on there, is the party on there, is the pub in there, is, is this on there, is that on there, you know, what is on your list of essential things? First ch uh, Corinthians chapter 9, so he's not just preaching at the Corinthians, what he's saying is, this is what I have done and what has he done? In a nutshell, what has he done? Yeah. He says, I've given up all rights and privileges. I've given up every right and every privilege as an apostle for your sake. Everything I had a right to expect, every privilege that you should be showing me and affording me as an apostle, I've given up. I've become a Jew when I'm with Jews. I act as if I'm under the law when I'm with them. Even though I know I'm not under the law. You won't find Paul arguing about the Sabbath. You'd find me arguing about it, but not Paul. You won't find him arguing about these things, the things that we take so much time about. He, he, when he's in Athens, he, he talks to them like a, a Gentile. When he's with Jews, he speaks like a Jew. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. Is that you? Really, honestly, ask yourself the question, is that you? Will you give up your rights? Will you give up your right to speak in the truth? Your right to giving them the correct doctrine because you want them to grow in the Lord and to understand that they're part of the family of God. Will you walk beside someone who's a long way behind you in their understanding of God. Will you just walk beside them and keep quiet? <laughs> yeah, because you can take the speaking out of it or well, you need to know the mm. speaking and how much better mm. life would be if I knew the mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was driving, I came from London this morning and I came past the... Um, road that cuts the M4 and goes down to Southampton and up to, forget where it is, Oxford, Oxford yeah, and the woman that discipled me um, is now living in Southampton with her husband, they are um, working for navigators, I think he's heading up the navigators ministry um, in Europe, I think, and I was thinking about her because I saw the sign for Southampton and uh, we've been saying we'll get together but she's busy and I'm busy, so... I don't know that that's going to happen, but I was thinking about how many times she must have kept quiet with me. <laughs> you know, I mean, she discipled me for the first two years of my Christian life. Can you imagine what I was like? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know, that's it. See, everybody can, and only I was worse than you can imagine. And uh, she was patient and kind and gentle, and she, she lived uh, her faith in front of me. She lived as a witness to her husband. I can tell you, I was completely against some of the things that she, she gave up for the sake of her husband. I was completely against the way that she, her life would never have been my life. But she witnessed Christ to me, and it's only now, 23 years later, that I'm understanding some of the things that she didn't say back then. Honestly. I was thinking as I came past the turning, you know, when she gets to heaven, oh my goodness, there is going to be a crown for her. 
just simply because she put up with me for two years. <laughs> and I'm where I am because she started me on that road. So we have no idea at what God's going to do and how he's going to use us. We have only to love the person, and she loved me, and put up with all sorts of stuff. Um, okay. So does it all mean we don't speak the truth? No, it doesn't mean that you don't speak the truth. It means that the person you speak the truth to knows that you will love them come what may. My friend knows that I love her. I am not her judge. I speak the truth to her, but I love her, and she knows it. And we have to get to that place with each other. We have to. Because she'll take the truth from me, because she knows I love her. And I'll take the truth from her. And she has things to say to me. Any questions? I've got a little quote here. It's, I wish it was mine, but it isn't. Um, see, I wouldn't have told you that a few years ago. I'd have just said, truth without love damages. Love without truth leads astray. Only the truth working through love transforms. I don't know where I got it from. Truth without love damages. Love without truth leads astray. Only the truth working through love transforms. The truth working through love transforms. And really, that's what's transforming you and I now. God's love working through truth. His love working through the truth of the word. That's what's transforming us. It's a really difficult path to walk because, as I say, our, our personalities take us one way or the other. And even it's difficult because we so want people to know the truth. And that's good. That's a good thing. But it's a hard path to walk that. To tell the truth, to, uh, but to love anyway. Yeah. Yeah, he beats his body and makes it his slave. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The wrong thing is glaring you in the face, but you purposefully and determinedly bring yourself yeah. into that submission. Definitely. And you're submitting to the Lord, trusting that He is about the transforming of that person. Which yeah. Makes you the slave to yeah. Yeah. I love that. 
Yeah. We're um, actually going to, next week, uh, I, I think that chapter 10 could start in verse 24 of chapter 9. So we're going to start in verse 24 of chapter 9 and go through chapter 10 next week. Um, I th- uh, there, there should be homework online soon. And if you if you haven't got the book, so do try to do it. Try to make a list of the, what you think is essential um, to being a Christian. It's really informative to do that. And um, yeah. So any questions? I'm not sure if it's up already, but it it yeah, should be today or tomorrow. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your truth that has transformed us. Thank you, Lord, that um, um, that we are to be about renewing our minds. We are to renew our minds and then trust that you, by your Spirit, will transform us through the truth that we've put in. Help us to, first of all, understand that we don't understand everything and then to understand and know that you are a loving God and you love us with this agape love, and we are now able to love one another in that way. Help us to understand that we're all, all of us inside the kingdom of God, and we are all of us learning. And the whole purpose of our transformation is to make us the same as the spirit that you have already transformed within us, and to be a witness in the world of your great love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Lord, help us to give ourselves because Christ gave himself for us. And I pray, Lord, that um, you will help us in the discernment of all of this, that we won't go astray one way or the other, but that we will do all that we can do to walk that difficult path, that difficult line between the two. Because we want to honour you, Lord. We want you to be glorified. So we thank you, Lord, for the truth that we're learning and the truth that we're seeing. And we thank you, too, for the love that you shed abroad in our hearts. And we ask you to help us to love each other with that same love. In Jesus' name, amen.